Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. Coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center, I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode... We continue our exciting journey through the world of HemePath. Well, you know, I, I also want to throw in a plug. I know Dan's going to get mad at me for this because he's a he's a pure benign heme kind of a guy and, and occasionally malignant heme, but also applies to some solid tumor stuff as well. Oh, I, I guess you're right. Uh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. So the world of HemePath and also solid cancers. Uh, so, you know, just to our listener, if you haven't done so already, we really recommend you check out last week's episode for part one. Now settle in. Here we go. So guys, last time, you know, you guys really taught me a lot about flow cytometry and I think I actually get it now, which is, which is really awesome. But Again, I'm thinking back to this night on call when, when I got that call from the HemePath fellow and I'm, I'm getting now to the point of that, that pathology report where it was like a bunch of letters and numbers and brackets and a fraction. And I got like flashbacks to calculus and then I had more uh, nightmares about that. So can you guys just please help me? Like, what does this mean and how is this clinically used? That, that's got to be the cytogenetics part of this report. <laughs> there's gotta there's be just it. nothing else, right? Oh man, that is, it's truly, it's a, it's a daunting section to go through. I, I totally get the, uh, the you know, trauma you felt from that. It um, just never makes sense. No, not once. But cytogenetics, what, what does that mean to you? What does the term cytogenetics mean to you, Ronick? So, you know, again, at the high level kind of thought process that I have about this is that last time we talked about flow cytometry as almost like the phenotype of the cell. It is what proteins are expressed on the cell surface. And, and I think, Dan, I think it was you that had said that this is analogous to someone's hair color. It's what, it's what we see on the outside. Now, my understanding of the cytogenetics is that it's more of the genetic information, what actually constitutes the genetic makeup of each individual cell and, you know, the various changes and mutations or lack thereof that, that, that make up the genetic component of each cell. So does, does that seem like a good kind of high level explanation? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, that's absolutely right. But, you know, specifically when we talk about cytogenetics, you know, we have a lot of different ways to look at the genetic makeup of a cell nowadays. I mean, you know, we can sequence cells, uh, you know, down to the single nucleotide level. When we talk about cytogenetics, that really is is looking at sort of large genetic rearrangements within individual cells. That That's sort of how that cytogenetics is classically defined. You're looking at sort of what changes are in the chromosomes of individual cells one at a time. And there are a few different sort of components to, to cytogenetics nowadays, a couple of different techniques that we commonly use in the clinical setting. Vivek, do you want to go over those? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And that, that's, that's the perfect explanation is that we're looking at chromosomal changes. So anytime you hear the word cytogenetics, always think chromosomal changes. One of those ways that we, Dan mentioned too, we have something called the conventional karyotype. That's your high school biology or college biology where you, where you learned that we have uh, 46 chromosomes and females are 46XX, males are 46XY, and you're looking at a map of all of those chromosomes that are making sure they're symmetrical. Those chromosomes should be symmetrical, but you might have things like 
additions of pieces of the chromosome or an addition of an entire chromosome, deletions, again, of pieces or an entire chromosome, inversions, top of the chromosome switched with the bottom part and you have some sort of an inversion, or a translocation, a piece of one chromosome broke off and attached to a different chromosome where it wasn't supposed to. And all of these changes really cause a cell to become cancerous in many ways. And when we think about malignant hematology and solid tumors, there are genetic changes that happen that causes a cell to become cancerous, clone itself, and divide like crazy. And understanding and finding these chromosomal abnormalities helps us not only risk stratify patients, meaning that more chromosomal changes is bad. So if you think about the, think about it this way, if you're looking at one of these karyotype reports or just in general, if you have two, three, four, five chromosomal changes, each time you add a chromosomal change, it means your genome is very unstable and you have higher risk disease. So one thing is risk stratification. And the second thing is it helps us support certain diagnoses. So certain diagnoses will have certain translocations that are characteristically associated with them. Uh, the perfect example is uh, with CML, you have the translocation 922 for that Philadelphia chromosome. So if you're doing a conventional karyotype, you're literally looking at all 46 chromosomes, and you would see that there's a translocation 922, a piece of the of the 9 and 22 chromosomes have attached to each other. And in our show notes, we, we'll show a picture of that so you guys can see that. So that's a conventional karyotype. Some downsides of that is that it's very labor intensive and you can only look at 20 cells at a time. And when we're thinking about malignant hematology, we can only do that on bone marrow specimens. So you can't really do the karyotype in the peripheral blood. And, and Dan, tell us more about why that is and, and how exactly the karyotype works. Yeah. So it, it's really a feature of how we, how we perform this test, how we actually get the, the karyotype information. Like you said, you know these cells need to be able to be cultured because uh, you have to arrest the cell in a specific point in its cell cycle. It has to be an actively growing cell. It's it's a pretty tedious process. I got to say, it's probably one of the most tedious things we ever had our heme path people do, and that's a pretty high bar. It, it used to involve uh, freezing the cells in metaphase, like I said, using colchicine of all things, an antimicrotubule agent we use commonly in the clinic, and then sort of smushing them down staining the chromatin, staining the actual chromosomes with the gem sustain, which causes this characteristic pattern of bands along each of the chromosomes, such that an experienced cytogeneticist can actually recognize, oh, well, this is chromosome 17, because this is how, not only because of its size, but this pattern of bands is characteristic of, of chromosome 17. And so uh, after, after the cells are stained and kind of smushed, they would take photomicrographs of all the chromosomes laid out and someone would clip them out with scissors and, and rearrange them on a piece of paper in front of them. Absolutely um, crazy that they did that. Nowadays, you know, obviously computers have made that a little easier, but still, I mean, even with our modern equipment, we can count 20 cells as a realistic thing to do. Uh, that, that just shows you how, how labor intensive it really is. But like Vivek said, you know, that this technique, because of how it works, it affords you uh, the opportunity to look at the whole the whole genome all at once in, in 20 dividing cells. Um, and so, you know, you can get, like you said, diagnostic translocation information and a lot of prognostic information from these major chromosomal rearrangements. So what you guys are saying, though, is that they have to be pretty big changes in order for you to appreciate them because you're looking for overall patterns. Is that is that safe to say? Totally. And, and you know, um, when we're thinking about uh, all the ways that we evaluate the genome and genomic material, 
it, it helps to think about things in terms of resolution. So just like uh, in light microscopy, you know, we have a 10x and 100x or whatever um, levels of microscopy, you can, uh, you can apply the same type of thinking to genetic information. And with conventional karyotype, we can see changes that are around 5 million bases. That's about the smallest change you can see. And, and that's uh, sort of 5 million individual nucleotides. And there's some other techniques that we'll see on cytogenetic reports that allow us to get a little bit finer detail, but they have their own limitations. And one of these is fish. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, a little bit about fish? Yeah. So I think clinically, the biggest thing to know is that fish is a more targeted and sensitive technique at looking for chromosomal changes. First thing to know is what does fish stand for? And Dan, I want you to reiterate this for sure when explaining exactly how the testing works. But it's fluorescence in situ hybridization. And essentially what that means from, from my understanding, from a pure clinical perspective, is that you're using specific DNA probes that correspond to certain chromosomal regions that allows you to detect translocations, additions, deletions, inversions. But in order to do this, you have to know what you're looking for. You have to have that DNA probe chosen before you run the test. Conventional karyotype, you don't need that. You're just looking at everything all at once. With the FISH technique, you're looking by using these specific DNA probes. So now you may be wondering, how do I know what DNA probes to choose beforehand? And the big thing is using clinical context. A couple of examples. One big one is the diagnosis of APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia, something that we learned about in medical school is that leukemia that has the hour rods and that characteristic translocation 1517, what you can do is you can say that, hey, these blasts, when I look at them, they morphologically appear to be consistent with that diagnosis of APL. But how do I confirm that? Well, one way to do that is by running fish, which you can do on the peripheral blood instead of the bone marrow specimen that was required before for the karyotype, and get the answer much faster uh, and and use DNA probes that are looking for specifically that translocation 1517 and make your diagnosis just on the peripheral blood. I want to note that it's always a more sensitive and a better sample when you're looking at bone marrow fish uh, when we're talking about these uh, leukemias. Because if you think about it, these leukemic cells all live in the bone marrow, so you're likely to get a better yield there. Another important clinical application is the utility of fish and diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So these lymphoma specimens are generally fixed from an excisional lymph node biopsy, but you can still run this fish testing on it. And the key thing here with diffuse large B cell lymphoma is you're looking for a rearrangement in either the MYC, BCL2, or BCL6 genes, which are all located on specific areas of the chromosome that can be targeted by these DNA fish probes. So you can basically say on this fixed specimen, is there a rearrangement in these important oncogene areas? And if there are two, for example, if you had a MYC and a BCL6 rearrangement, we have what we call a double hit lymphoma, and that's more aggressive. So those are two important examples of fish clinically. And the key thing to remember again is you're looking for specific chromosomal changes and you will have to choose DNA probes that are appropriate for that clinical context. And that will give you the information that you need uh, for the chromosomal changes of the cell. So Dan, can you tell us a little bit more about how fish works on a basic science perspective? Yeah. So uh, it's a pretty cool technology and it's a little bit more... Um 
a little bit more colorful than the last one. And so that the name itself, FISH, it stands for Fluorescence in Situ Hybridization, right? So breaking that down, what we're doing is we're using fluorescently labeled DNA probes, like you mentioned, that are targeted towards specific regions of interest on the chromosome. When we're looking at translocations or we're trying to detect whether or not a translocation is present, what we do is we design a DNA probe that spans that translocated region such that it would only bind to the DNA if the translocation is present, if these two pieces of genetic sequence that are not normally next to each other are next to each other. And, you know, once that DNA probe binds, it sends off a fluorescent signal that we're able to pick up with a detector, you know, through any number of means by which we look at fluorescently labeled cells, right? It'd be that confocal microscopy or flow or whatever else. And what's so useful about this is that, you know, like you said, this is something you can do much more quickly. It's a simple four or five hour hybridization as opposed to growing cells up in culture, arresting them in metaphase, staining them, cutting them, cropping them, all this other stuff. With fish, you get an answer, yes, no, pretty quickly, uh, relatively speaking. And so for these really critical decisions that you, or when a critical clinical decision is weighing on the answer, it makes sense to just look for the one thing. You know, you'll still want the conventional karyotype later for prognosticating or whatever else. But getting that yes-no answer really fast with fish can be critical. And, and especially if you want to define more fine-grained genetic changes, you'll, you really need both of these pieces uh, to, to round that out. Got it. Okay. I, I mean, I think that that makes things a lot more clear than they were before. Is it okay if I kind of check with you guys to make sure I took away what you were hoping that I would take away? Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. sounds great. Okay. All right. So... Uh, when we talk about cytogenetics, there's basically two different parts to that. There's the conventional cytogenetics or the karyotype. And this provides us more of a high level snapshot, if you will, of, of changes um, that are happening uh, in the chromosomes. But the big thing about this is that you need live cells that you're then arresting in order to examine and, and, and look at for these, for these characteristic changes um, or changes in a pattern, essentially. And so, you know, the con to that, though, is that you need active cells. Um, and, and, you know, because it's a high level kind of procedure, you can't get that smaller detail that you would get with our next technique, which is the fluorescence in situ hybridization or the fish. Um, and so as you guys said, and this is a really good reminder for me, is that fish can be sent from peripheral blood. In the middle of the night, if you have a clinical suspicion for something, you can send off a fish, assuming that your lab was able to run it. And basically, with that clinical index of suspicion, you're able to look for specific changes in your genetic information that are characteristic for different types of diseases. But the caveat to this, though, is that you need some index of suspicion. You need to know, you need to tell your, your lab technicians what kind of probes and such you're asking them to use um, in order for them to, you know, adequately make that assessment for you and help you uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Does that capture what we just talked about? Yeah, Ronick, that was perfect. You know, and one of the other, a few other key points I want to highlight. When you're looking at a karyotype report, you'll see there's there's a whole new language there. In one of our future episodes, we'll really get into the nitty gritty of how to interpret a karyotype report. But bottom line is to always remember this. If that karyotype report line is really long, it's not just 46XX, but it's like 
45, XY, minus 7, T922, T1517, T... And I'm, I'm making stuff up there, but I'm saying a long karyotype, lots of chromosomal changes. Always remember, higher risk disease. That's always bad. It means you have a higher risk disease. Got it. The second thing that I, that I wanted to highlight out of this um, that Ronak said beautifully is that that fish you can do on fixed specimens. And that's huge. So we talked about how you can do it on the peripheral blood, which is very helpful if you to, to find things to make diagnoses. But also you could do it on fixed specimens. And this is my solid tumor plug, which Dan didn't want me to do. But this podcast will also talk about solid tumor things as well. Um, uh. For breast cancer, to look at HER2 status, um, one of the ways to do that is through fish. And one of the fascinating things about the way that's done is that you you have this colored probe that's looking at the HER2 locus on the 17th chromosome. So if you have extra copies of HER2, lots of expression of HER2, let's say that you had a red probe, a red flag, and you looked at the fish study, you would see a bunch of red stuff in the cell. And that's HER2. But then you also have this green probe that's on something called CEP17, which is a centromere located on chromosome 17, CEP17. And what you'll what you'll see in these fish reports is that you'll see a lot of red and not a lot of green. So that CEP17 is like a control that these breast cancer cells have lots of HER2, so that HER2 region's over-amplified, but that CEP17 control region is not over-amplified. And so you'll see that there's a ratio of HER2-CEP17, and the higher the ratio is, the more HER2 positivity that cell is, meaning you have lots of HER2 expression and not a lot of that CEP17 control. So again, that's how you can do it on a fixed specimen. And if you're ever always forgetting, like I always did in the past, is is like, when is it HER2 positive on fish for breast cancer? Just remember that CEP17 is a control and you want that HER2 number to be high, so that ratio is going to be a, a large number. That is something I also didn't know, but you know, that seems to be a common theme here. So I just want to say once again, thanks guys. That really does help a lot. And, you know, I think that the next time this happens when I'm on call, I think I'm going to be a little bit more confident with myself and my ability to, to talk to our hemepath colleagues without, you know, having a little heart attack when I'm on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always the worst. And, and remember it, we're, we're, it's pieces of the puzzle. You just put each piece together and then that's how you get your diagnosis characteristic changes along all of these things. Well, I think that just about wraps up another episode of The Fellow on Call. Any final words, gentlemen? I'll let Dan the man take this one. <laughs> no, I, I think that just about does it. Uh, again, I'm just glad you guys are interested in hearing some of this uh, scientific detail. I, I could talk about it for ages. And uh, I, the main reason I think it's important is if you understand how some of these tests are run, you'll understand the pitfalls and you'll understand their benefits. So yeah, I guess just thanks for listening. Sounds good. Well, guys, until next time, uh, thanks for joining us on another episode. Take care. See ya. See you later. Bye.